Scripture reading today is from Exodus 21 and some from chapter 22 and 23 as well. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray, and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Good morning. In his book, uh, The Year of Living Biblically, A.J. Jacobs, he describes a year in which he set out to follow all of the, the Bible, the rules and guidelines that he found in the Bible. Jacobs was a, he described himself as a secular Jew. I uh, grew up hearing about the, you know, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but really did not know much about it. One of my favorite lines, he describes himself, um, Jewish like the Olive Garden is Italian, which is not very. I thought that was a great line. So he sets out to read the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. As he's reading, he types out every command he finds in it, and he ends up with 700 of them. And then he then takes the, the, the year to follow those as literally as possible. Okay, so the Bible says uh, you can't wear clothes that are made of mixed fiber. So he gets rid of all his polycotton t-shirts. Bible says you're, you're to leave the edges of your beard unshaven. So he just doesn't shave for a year. He said by the end of the year he was getting stopped at airport security a lot. Okay, Bible says you're to stone an adulterer. This one's a little more challenging, okay? How do you do that and not end up in prison? But one day, Jacobs is out in the park. He's, he's got his biblical clothing on, his sandals, his white robe. And this guy comes up to him, and he asks him why he's dressed like that. And so Jacobs explains what he's doing, and the man says, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And Jacob says, well, that would be great. Because for weeks, Jacob, in, in his pocket, had carried around these little pebbles, and he'd been waiting for just this opportunity to stone an adulterer with these pebbles. So what happens is he pulls out the pebbles, but this guy, who's in his mid-70s, proceeds to grab the pebbles from him and start throwing them at Jacob's. Which means now he realizes he can eye for eye and tooth for tooth the guy. He can start throwing them right back. Today we come to the, the section of Exodus known as the Book of the Covenant, which is basically three straight chapters of laws, right? Fun stuff. I know you guys have been looking forward to this. Uh, often when you come to a section like this in, in Exodus or the Bible, you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? What, what, are this, what does this mean for me today? Like, yeah, so I don't think most of us are probably going to want to take the Jacob's route, try to follow all these literally. I don't think most of us want to chuck this either, though. We profess this to be holy scripture, right? My Bible says holy Bible. It doesn't say that 
starting in the New Testament, it says the whole thing is holy. And I remember in 2 Timothy when the Apostle Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I'm like, man, Paul, all? The book of the covenant? This ancient Near Eastern case law, is this useful too? Well, let's find out. Let's begin by answering that question by, as we've often done this story, orient ourselves that we are in a story, Okay. Not just laws coming out of nowhere. We're in the middle of a story. It's a story about the Israelites who were in captivity, who were enslaved in Egypt. They've been free. Okay? We always got to get that order right. They were saved, and then they were given the law. Uh, and this law is a gift to this fledgling nation. Okay? They're, they're repeatedly, there's a really clear passage in Deuteronomy about this, but they're repeatedly told, if you follow these laws, things are going to go well from you. Life is going to flourish. There's going to be justice in the land. There's going to be order in the land. And so the, we spent uh, three weeks in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a lots of thou shall nots. Okay? These are different. These are if, then. Okay? If something like this happens, then this is what should be done about it. These are known as case laws. So, you, okay, let's give an example. You, sh- you, you shall not steal, okay? Well, what do we do if somebody steals? You shall not murder. What do we do if somebody murders? Well, these start to answer some of those questions. And what they do, and not, not entirely, this is not straightforward, but they'll take some of these ethical principles in the, old, in the uh, Ten Commandments and then begin to figure out how does this work out on the ground? How does this work out among a specific people in a specific time and a specific place? And so um, let's look at, we're just going to look at a couple examples here. We're going to start with uh, uh, verse 35. You can put up that slide, Ron. All right. If anyone's bull injures someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide the money anim- the animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it pinned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and take the dead animal in exchange. Okay, so here's some specific guidelines. If this happens, if your bull gets out of its pen and it gores somebody else's bull, right, this is what you do. And what I want you to notice about this law is it's, in a lot of these laws, they're primarily concerned with the restitution uh, of the, to the victim of the offense. We see this a lot of places uh, in these case laws. Okay, your bull got out, it damaged the neighbor's property. Now the big concern is what do we do about this? How do we make this right? How do we heal this uh, that's happened between these two neighbors? Like, not many of us have bulls these days. I imagine probably, what, a couple generations ago, we would have had some bulls in here, right? Do we have anybody that owns a bull here right now? No bulls. Okay. I've never owned a bull. I've owned feeder cattle, right? I've had, when I lived in Illinois, I raised feeder cattle almost every year. And occasionally they would get out, and it was very stressful to me. It was like the most stressful thing to me. Uh, and, and so I'm out chasing my cattle and I'm thinking about these stories that I've heard about uh, cattle, cattle getting out, and the corn is high, corn is already headed out and everything, and those cattle just hang out in the fields. I mean, these are big, these are Illinois fields. These are like 1,000 acres. And that, those cattle can just get lost in those fields, and they can just go weeks and weeks and weeks, all right? You've lost your cattle, but like, now what do you do with all this corn that's gone in your neighbor's field? Okay? So I'm nervous about my property, but I'm also nervous about my neighbor's property. And I'm nervous that I'm going to get the reputation as the guy who doesn't take care of his fences. Like in a, in a small rural community, you guys know this, that's not, that's not okay to get a reputation of the guy whose cattle are always getting out, right? Can I get an amen? 
It's not okay to your cattle to get out. You all grew up on farms. You know this. Okay? So it becomes a community problem. Okay? And what I want you to notice about these laws is they're very sensitive to the community, to the community well-being, to community shalom. Okay? Your bull gets out, it kills somebody else's bull, it gores or it kills someone, even worse. It's less an offense to the state as an injury to the community. It's an injury to the peace and well-being of the community. So interestingly, these, these laws, they deal, they, they're much more concerned with restitution than they are the punitive aspect of it. Now, some of them clearly have a punitive aspect to it, okay? But it's less like, okay, this offense happened, how can we punish this person? And more, how can we make this right between these two parties, okay? Your bull killed my bull, here's how we're going to handle it, all right? So, um, uh, now, let's, let's think about this compared to our own legal system. There's a little bit of this in our own legal system. There's a little bit of restitution. But I think we tend to primarily think about offenses as against, offenses against the state. Okay, let's just think about a scenario here. Uh, someone in Columbia, and it goes in and smashes a front window of a business on Main Street. Okay, they steal a bunch of merchandise. What happens? The state is going after that person, right? Okay, is that person the next day got their broom and they're sweeping the glass and they're helping to restock the shelves? And not very often do I see that. The offense has been committed to the state, so the state's got a deal. They're up, they're in prison somewhere around here, okay? It's pretty unlikely that there's going to be too much reconciliation between that person who who smashed that glass and the person whose glass was smashed, right? We typically, again, this is not entirely, I think Mennonites have actually done some good work on this. We typically live in a society that's more concerned with vengeance and punishment of the wrongdoer than restitution or how that victim is, uh, who, who, who experienced that is, is, is experiencing that. Okay, let's look at another one. The uh, example of uh, equality before the law. You can put up the next slide, Ron. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Okay, don't show favoritism to a poor person. Okay, just because you're poor doesn't mean that you're given special treatment in the court. Okay, okay I think we agree with that. A couple of verses later, though, read this. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Okay, so it, it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. Same law applies to you, okay? And most of us would say, well, of course, that's the way it should be. Like, if I'm driving down 46, and I'm going 70 miles an hour, and I'm a millionaire, and I'm going 70 miles an hour, and I got nothing, the fine should be the same, right? But in the world of the Israelites, the nature and quantity of punishment varied according to social status and of the victim of the offense. So justice looks different if you're poor than if you're rich. So go back to my... Example in 46, right? I'm rich, I'm a millionaire, my fine's 20 bucks. I'm poor, fine's 200, my license is revoked, okay? That seems like, we're like, that's, something's not right about that. That's not a quality under the law. Back then, though, people wouldn't think that was a big deal. Even in many places in the world today, people would be like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, Christopher Wright tells this story. Um, he's, a, he's a Bible scholar, Old Testament Bible scholar. He's over in India, 
and he's leading a seminar on, on the ethical relevance of the Old Testament. So how do these ethics of the Old Testament actually um, uh, inform our behavior as Christians today? And so after the seminar, this young Indian man comes up to him and says, uh, he, he's excited to tell him that he became a Christian by reading through the Old Testament. Not something you hear very often, right? But this, this man had grown up in a Dalit village, which is the lowest of the low among the outcast groups in India. And so this, this is a group that is despised and oppressed by the high caste Hindus in the region, historically. Well, the guy ends up going to university, and he is determined to get an education so that he can turn the tables on his oppressors, his tormentors. But while he's at university, on his bed, he finds a Bible. Okay, he was left by one of the evangelical societies there. And it's written in his own language. So he picks this up for the first time, and he starts reading it. Picks it up in the Old Testament. And the guy is shocked by all these, testament, all these stories in the Old Testament about religious leaders like Elijah, who in the name of their God take the side of the poor against the rich king or the rich queen. Okay? They're, they're not just taking the side. They're doing it in the name of the God. Like He's like, I didn't even know a God like this existed. A God who sends messengers to to speak on behalf of the poor and oppressed, this is all very strange to him, okay? This man who had experienced this oppression himself. So he decides to then go back to the beginning of the Bible, starts in Genesis, and he starts to get to sections like this in Exodus where it's the law, and he gets even more excited. These are the parts that, like, let's be honest, if you're in the Bible plan, you get to these parts and you're like, okay, here we go. This guy's getting, he's like, oh, man, this is exciting, because there's all these instructions about how to treat the poor. And he says to write, this God thinks of everything. This God thinks of everything. When we read uh, these laws and we think about like uh, this principle of equality under the law, we think, of course. But that is in large part because so much of our imagination for how things should be has been informed by the Bible, has been informed by the God of the Bible. But when this man from India, who, who doesn't know this, who's grown up poor and mistreated by the rich, finds out there's a God who cares about the poor and comes to the defense of the poor, he is excited. He's amazed. On top of that, like, I don't doubt in our country that, in theory, the rich and the poor sit under the same law. But think about the reality of that. I'm no law expert. I don't have any statistics about this. I'm just going on my personal observation. How often do I see someone who's rich do something, do some heinous crime, and before no time, they're free. Like, am I the only one that's observed that? Like, that seems like that happens all the time. I'm like, there's no way this guy or woman, I guess it seems like most a guy, this guy's going to get out of jail. But this guy can hire a high-powered attorney. I don't know if it's because he shows up in a nice suit. I don't know if he's got his connections. But it always seems like it's very different than the guy who has nothing. Okay? Again, I'm not using any statistics. I'm just using my own common sense here. See, when I come to these laws in, in Exodus, I'm like, these are regressive. These are backwards. I need to kind of have talk to these laws and, and help them kind of get up to speed. But I want you to see there's points in this where the laws speak to us and say, hey, maybe you're not doing this as well as you should have. Now, I say that I'm really glad these are not our laws today. I'm really glad we don't have to be like A.J. Jacobs and be like, all right, we're going to have to literally follow these because we're going to have to go out of here and start finding some sorcerers uh, here after the service. I don't think any of us want to do that. Okay, these, God, these laws were given to God's people as they're becoming a nation state. That's important to notice. 
Okay? As you're a nation state, you have physical boundaries. You have a physical nature. You are a, a nation. That's not how the church is today. We're not a nation state. We draw people from all nations. We don't have physical borders to protect. That's why we don't have an army. And that's why our weapons are not physical, they're spiritual. These laws, so these laws, I want to be clear, these laws do not apply to us, but we can learn from them. They can be very useful as we look at some of the principles of these laws and see how they can uh, inform us today. Even more importantly than that, though, I want us to see how these laws reflect the character of God, the nature of God, who God is. Somebody, I won't name names, this person will probably gladly tell you who they are, came up to me after the service last week and said, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. How long are we going to be in the book of Exodus? Stung a little bit. We got like five weeks left. All right, we're going to really start like moving fast here. We don't have 40 years in Exodus. I get that we've camped out in the Old Testament a long time, maybe a lot longer than this congregation is used to, but one of the many reasons why I think we needed, we need to and needed to spend some time in the Old Testament is to see the continuity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. See, we have this tendency to equate Yahweh, so the God who's giving these laws right now, as parallel with what we call God the Father in the New Testament. Anybody ever done that kind of thought, okay, Yahweh is what we call God the Father in the New Testament, and Jesus is kind of different. Has anybody else had that thought before? Maybe you're not even doing it consciously, but it kind of seeps in. Um, I've certainly had that. So, you know, and some of it's understandable. Right after these Ten Commandments are given, um, at the beginning of this part, there's lightning and smoke, and the people are trembling. They're like, oh, please do not let God talk to us anymore. We don't want to hear from God anymore. We'll hear from you, but not God. It doesn't sound like, like God... Revealed through Jesus Christ, does it? Like maybe, okay, maybe that's God the Father, but that doesn't sound like God the Son. Okay, what happens then is we start to think that in the New Testament, all right, Jesus, he's the newcomer on the scene. Like smoke, fire, thunder, wrath. Whew, all right, Jesus is here. We can all just kind of relax. John Mark Comer puts it this way It's as if we have this caricature of God the Father as being the grumpy old warmonger of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the son who went off to Berkeley and came home with all sorts of radical ideas about grace and love and tolerance and basically said, come on, Dad, let's not kill everybody. How about I die for them instead? I love that. It's really funny. What's the problem? What's the problem when we begin to see that, God that way? We really are going to get God wrong. Okay, we're really going to miss, we're going to make a caricature of God. Because one of the core confessions of our faith is that the God who reveals himself as Yahweh is the same God who reveals himself as Jesus Christ. Not two different gods. Not two different parts of the Trinity. Same God. And I get it, okay? I'm a Mennonite. I struggle with parts of the Old Testament. I'll just put my cards out right there. Okay? I struggle with some of the violence in the Old Testament. I struggle with the war in the Old Testament. One, I'd say, it's okay to struggle. Don't think that you're struggling and uncomfortable is a bad thing. Like, interestingly, I didn't ask him permission, but if you were to talk to Abel and say, hey, what in the Bible makes your culture in West Africa uncomfortable? I can almost guarantee you it's going to be very different things than our culture. 
we have things in the Bible that make us uncomfortable. That, those things don't make people around the world uncomfortable. We have different things, but they would have things that make them uncomfortable. Okay? So, so be okay with having some discomfort, but also recognize, and this is where it helps, we're not a nation state anymore. We don't have to fight these wars. In fact, that's not our command to fight these wars or these violence. Some things do change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The commands that God gives his people change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but God does not change. Okay? And the more we study the Old Testament, the more we're going to be able to see that continuity between the God revealed in the Old Testament and the God revealed in Jesus. So with it, with, let's look at one more set of commands with that in mind. Um, this is from chapter 22, if you want to follow along, 21 through 27. Okay, in this section, we got, we got God zeroing in on this group of people which constitute the most vulnerable people in the new nation. Foreigners, widows, the fatherless, and the poor. So let's start with the foreigner in verse 21. We read, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Foreigners, aliens in the Old Testament receive a lot of attention. Okay? Israel wasn't the only uh, culture that had a, a laws, uh, and there was lots of other kind of laws out there for their own cultures. Lots of them even commended their people to have compassion on orphans and widows. But none of them, according to Christopher Wright, have exhortations about fair treatment of foreigners. This was really strange that this law, this case law for the Israelites, had these specific uh, uh, commands related to foreigners. Okay? The God of the Old Testament is very, very, very concerned about foreigners and aliens and people who are not native-born Israelites. Okay? But not only that, but God says, you better be concerned about them. Why is that? Why should I be concerned about them? I mean, think about how strange it seems. Like, this doesn't, why should I be? Okay, because you were once foreigners. You were in Egypt, right? Remember the story. Think about this. This command's going to go out to generation after generation after generation. These people will soon be dead, this generation. And yet this command will keep going out to generations and saying, hey, you were foreigners in Egypt. You were mistreated. You were oppressed. And they could say, no, we weren't oppressed. No, we weren't. no, you were mistreated. Your people were mistreated. I think this is super useful for us today. Because think about it. Who's, who here is originally from Northeast Ohio? None of you. None of you are from Northeast Ohio. Abel just got here later than the rest of us did. I mean, that's the reality. Your people came from somewhere else. Your people were foreigners. Some of your people were even mistreated, weren't they? You have stories about when they first got to this country and they were mistreated. See, God is very aware of this tendency for people who were once foreigners to get in a country and once they get established to shut the door to everybody else. And rather than be sympathetic to the people who are once like them, they actually do the opposite. They continue the cycle of mistreatment. Okay, I want to be clear. We, don't, we do not see a picture of a lawless society in the Old Testament. Not at all advocating that. What we do see, though, is a society that should be very careful about how it treats foreigners. Because we see that God is very aware of their plight. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Now we're hitting all these vulnerable people. Verse 22. There's a slide for that one. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. 
Verse 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy and do not, do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Okay, here we have laws protecting the most, more vulnerable people. We've got widows, we've got fatherless, and we've got the poor. Okay? And we've really got the poorest of the poor. Like, this is really who we're talking about here. These are all people who have a disadvantage. Okay? Foreigners don't have property. These, all these groups have disadvantages. And here's what I want you to notice. There's a shift here. Okay? By this point, we've gotten, we've gotten tons of laws from God. Like, all right, what do you do if your bull gets out? Okay, this is what you do. What, what about if your neighbor's taking care of your donkey and the donkey dies? What are you going to do? Well, we got a law for that. Okay, well, what about if you give your neighbor silver and that neighbor loses that silver? Okay, we got a law for that. But it's like, it's kind of impersonal. It's kind of logistical, all right? It's like Moses and God talking, all right? Like, yeah, we got a law. Keep going, keep going. But there's a shift here. Because God starts using the personal pronoun I. If you notice, God's getting a little riled up right here. Like God's going down this list, important, necessary laws for the law and order of society, and then he starts talking about widows, and God says, this is personal. And then he starts talking about the fatherless and the poor, and he says, this is personal. It's like someone who maybe works tirelessly to pass a law against drunk driving, and we find out they lost a son or a daughter to drunk driver. That's personal. That's, that's the law, but it's more than the law. It's personal. And think about this. Here's an all-powerful God who hears everything, and yet this God seems hyper-tuned in to the cries of the vulnerable, to the cries of the downtrodden, to the cries of the oppressed. Because when those cries come up, God gets riled up. God gets angry. We do not worship a stoic and emotionless God who gives a bunch of commands and says, hey, do your best to work these out. I got things to do. God's anger is aroused at the injustice to the most vulnerable members of society. God says, you must not treat them this way. This is really important. Because of who I am. I'm compassionate. Again and again, we're going to see this in the Old Testament where the commands of God are built on the character God. Who is God? That will inform you then how to act. So again, we'll see that again and again. God will give a command. He said, you do this because this is who I am. In this case, I am compassionate. I am very sensitive to, to, to the injustices that are done to the most vulnerable members of society. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus to me. Compassionate? Aware of the most vulnerable members of society? That sounds like Jesus. There's this great verb in the New Testament. I just came across this recently, reading through Mark, uh, where it describes Jesus a couple times, and splagnitsamai. Can you say that? No, I was kidding. I had trouble saying it. it it's great, because I get excited whenever I see this verb, because it means compassion, but I also know, I've studied, I know it's, it, that doesn't really do justice, because it's talking about the, like, the, the guts, the inwards, the bowels of a person, Right? It's a feeling of what you feel in the gut of your stomach. 
It doesn't just, it's not just that you see something, you, you recognize it in your mind, you feel it in your body. Have you ever had something like that? Have you ever watched an injustice and felt it in your stomach? That's what God seems to feel when he sees the injustice done to the most vulnerable. He feels it in his gut. It hits him hard. Let's try to bring this home a little bit at the end here because I think this is useful. If the God we see here takes justice, injustice to the most vulnerable so personally and so seriously, so should we. Not only should we take notice of the injustice, we should feel it in our guts. We should feel it in our inwards. We should feel it in our bowels. As followers of Jesus, we should care about the fatherless and motherless. We should care about children who are caught up in a foster system. They're desperate for a home and a family. We should care about the widow or the widower in their 90s who's alone in assisted living. As followers of Jesus, we should care about the immigrant, the person who just got to this country, who's struggling to start a new life just like our ancestors did. We should be sensitive to those in rural communities around Northeast Ohio who are working three jobs and cannot make a living. As followers of Jesus, we should care about the poor and minorities like African-American brothers and sisters who are still not treated equally under the law. As followers of Jesus, we should care about the vulnerable child in the womb of a mother, and we should care about the vulnerable mother who is carrying that child. Because as followers of Jesus, our call is to care about those who are vulnerable, literally, literally, because that's who God cares about, because God takes that personal. When Jesus says in Matthew, whatever you did or did not do to me, whatever you did or did not do for the least of these, you did or did not do for me, and he's saying, this is personal, right? Isn't Jesus saying that? I think that's what Jesus is saying is I take this personally, just like God of the Old Testament takes it personally, gets riled up. But these laws, they're not just useful for your ethics. If you are a person who doesn't feel heard or seen by this society, man, this text is telling you God does. God doesn't just think of everything. God thinks of everyone. Nobody gets past God. I don't care what society has told you about what your worth is. That's not God's assessment for you. God's ears are zeroed in on you. God is hearing your cries. God cares for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for how you reveal yourself to us in your word. A God who hears uh, the cries of the oppressed, those experiencing injustice, is moved to compassion. Thank you that you are not an emotionless God. You're not a stoic God. You're not a distant God. You're a personal God. You drew near to the people then and you draw near to us. Lord, we want to be a people who um, build our lives around the character of God, meaning we build our lives caring about the most vulnerable people in our society, all the most vulnerable. We want to be people who just recognize how deeply loved they are and we are. You are not a distant God. You are a God who draws near and has drawn near to us most supremely through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We ask this all through his name. Amen.